when you have the stopping of thinking, which usually means stopping to worry, that's kind of synonymous on some level. Overthinking means over worrying, not knowing what to do. If you just don't know and you empty your brain and, you, and allow yourself to not know, the most fantastic ideas arise and the most wonderful things out of nowhere. And, and I think it's just leaving room for your brain to process whatever is doing, whatever it is, its chemistry is doing to allow it to do that. Welcome to Dear Seekers. This is Sasha Shell, and that was Myra Kelman. Myra is an author and illustrator based in New York. She has written and illustrated over thirty books, both for adults and children. And her work has appeared in publications like the New York Times Magazine, and on the cover of the New Yorker. One of her most provocative works was Sarah Bertman's Closet. It's a memoir of her late mother Sarah, who immigrated from Belarus to Tel Aviv in 1932. Sarah, one day in her 60s, just self-edited, self-reinvented, and created a new identity. And since then, she had never looked back and only worn white pieces. After her death, her personal garments and belongings were later preserved by Myra, and were eventually exhibited in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Myra is the most senior guest I have on the podcast so far. She is seventy-three, yet she is one of the most playful and dreamlike people I've ever met. She's joining me from New York. She has acquired a skill and mindset that lets her tap into her inner child anytime she wants. She has a very artistic relationship with her son Alex, and they have collaborated on so many projects together. Which, as a mother myself who has a son, I hope、um, I will be able to do with my son in the future. And Myra has developed a very fond connection with nature, while trees in particular. And dogs. She is very witty and has a strong sense of humor. And my laughs during the whole interview were evidence of that. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you will do too. And also, please leave us a review or comment, or share with your friends if you like this podcast. And if you subscribe to our Substack letter, you will have early access to our podcast conversations. Plus the exclusive letters and essays, and also the visual component of this podcast. All right, I hope you enjoy. How how is in New York? New York is sunny, and spring is beginning to greet us. So it's a very nice time. In contrast to what's going on in the world, we we need to walk in the park and look at flowers. Yeah. It, which season is your favorite? I think spring is the most、uh, glorious time in New York. I, I love New York every day, every day. But、uh, spring is great. Do you still have? Because、um, from the research I've done, prepare for this interview, I learned that、um, you have a、uh, many rituals that you've acquired and still practice on a daily basis. First is reading obituary in the morning and going for a walk with your friend every day for that practice has been over twenty years. So, are they are they still part of your daily life, or you have acquired new other rituals? No, I stick to a good thing. So it's exactly that. It's I, I have a cup of coffee with my obits and a cookie to soften the sadness of an obit. But、uh, yeah, a walk is a walk is critical. Sometimes twice a day because. Because we need it. When did you start this、uh, ritual? You say it's been、About、over twenty years. Almost twenty-five years. Almost twenty-five years. Wow. Was it a one day you kind of just woke up in the morning and you're like, "This is the day I'm gonna go for a walk and I'm gonna. This is gonna change my life." Well, I started taking my daughter to high school and it was near Central Park, so that became very alluring. And then my good friend happened to be in the same neighborhood, and we said, "Let's do this." And then since then, that has been every day. Yeah, well, mostly every day. So when it rains, we don't go. 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder why this particular friend, because in an interview you talk about、um, this friend is a doctor and she has different practices professionally and artistically, and also you know like seeing a friend and doing something together on a daily basis for over twenty five years. I think that's quite a rare situation. You know, like we are so busy in our life, sometimes we. Intend to almost neglect friendship when we grow up in a way. <laughs> I'm very fortunate. She's interesting, so we don't get bored. And I hope she thinks I'm interesting, so we don't get bored. <laughs> That's a really big deal. And we and I think we don't get on each other's nerves, which is also a big deal. So it's a great bit of luck.、Mm-hmm. And so when I first、um, came across your work was. When the visual memoir of your late mother and you, the family memoir, almost like、um, Sarah Bartman, the is Clo- closet was published、um, in 2018, and the cover illustration was pretty much taking over the internet by storm. And <laughs> you know, I couldn't pinpoint exactly who that person was. She looked very familiar, yet not. And、um, so, I at first I was like, who is this woman that is, you know? Have a very interesting style. Of course, look into it. I understand that she was your mother, and、um, her closet full of you know white crisp shirts, pants, even her underwear, notebooks, <laughs> were exhibited at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And in an interview and a video, you also said that if she knew this would happen, she would be speechless. Is it because out of joy? Is it out of surprise? Or is it something else? Oh well, I think that a person who's very private, who has a very humble, quiet life, and if they're elevated to a public event that there is a show about them,、uh, they would be speechless. I hope with pleasure, amazement,、uh, incredulous, you know, many words that would that would mean why would anybody want to do a show about me? But she was so singular as a person that I think that what it tells us is that. A small life is a very important life too, and that、uh, the sense of humor and the sense of beauty are the things that are carried through to other people and other generations. So she became a symbol of some kind of simplicity and and meaning, a kind of meditation、mm. on what's important. And your mother has played and also continued to play a very important role in your artistic life. And obviously, your personal life as well.、Um, yet, during some interviews, you talk about you know there weren't a lot of like deep conversations in the family. There are not a lot about feelings, thoughts, or decisions.、Um, so, I wonder how did your mother influence you, and how how was your relationship with with your mother was like? I think that one of the most important lessons you can ha- you can have or give to someone. Is what you don't say, and to not impose your opinions too heavily on somebody, especially a child who has to form their own opinions about life and feel that they're making their own decisions and their own stupid mistakes and their own crazy travels and you know crazy journeys. So, by the way, today is her birthday.、Oh, so it's、wow. very lovely that we're speaking on my mother's birthday, and she would have been a hundred and two. Oh, so、wow. we celebrate her birthday. And this is a very nice thing to do, but I think that the 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 happy elemental birthday, <laughs> happy birthday, Sarah. Thank you, thank you, Sasha. I, I think that we learn by allowing a human being to be themselves and not overwhelming them. And I think that's what she did. She was herself. She had a very strong sense of honor, and she couldn't tell a lie. There was no way she could do that. And you knew there was a trust that was so so certain and so deep, and her love was so certain and so deep that she trusted us. And、uh, and that's a hard thing to do with kids, on, at any age. But I would say that that's instead of having deep conversations about things, she just was an example. Yeah, yeah. Because as a mother and parent myself, sometimes I intend to wanted to bring my experience and wisdom. I think I have passed down to my son because ultimately I want the best for him. But you are so right because sometimes like silence actually speaks more, and just set up example and actions speak louder. Yes, and just to be yourself. <laughs> 
So, and as I say, we both know that it's a hard thing when you have kids to to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> but it's a, but it's a good it's a good thing to try to practice. You can't always do it. Obviously, we're human, uh, but uh, sometimes it's good just to let them. Let them do what they need to do. And is that how you kind of nurture the relationship between you and your children? Because I know I'm not sure about your your daughter, but I know your son Alex has you know really follow your footstep in terms of art, artistic practice. He's um, curator, artist, writer himself, and also the co-author of your of your book of your mother. So, yeah, I wonder when you were because also you became a mother. I mean, in nowadays, it wouldn't consider as late. But I can assume back then, in your th- late thirties, I would assume that was considered a little bit late to become a mother. Well, it was early thirties. If you consider thirty-two oh, really? or thirty-five early, which I would, I would say early. 30s, my apologies to my research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's okay. They're allowed. To, but but uh, so uh, I think that I was around. We were. A generation of women that wanted to find our identity, to find our work, and not rush into having children. But then, when I had my children, I said, "Ah, this is why I'm alive." Not that it, not that I didn't want to be an artist, but I understood that they were more important than anything, and to me, their well-being and their welfare. So both my children are very independent, with a great sense of humor. My daughter is wonderfully creative in her field. And、uh, an incredible mother to two little girls. So, I I see the I see the the legacy of of Sarah. I hope in me in that nurturing people who will feel that they can do what they whatever they want to do、mm. they can do. Yeah, and also I mean in in an interview you kind of mentioned that、um, your mom's life, especially when. She and her your father divorced a very unhappy marriage after over thirty years, and kind of inspire you to think, you know, like nothing in life has an expiration date. You are free to change at any age. That's a very liberating thought. But sometimes I feel like that's harder to to do, to practice in real life. So, what do you think you require for someone to? To you know, acquire this kind of thing to in order to to not be restrained by whatever we were told by society pressure、right. or even by parental pressures. I I really don't know the answer to that. I think everybody obviously has such a different way of looking at the world, and I just would hope that.、Uh, also, I'm the man that I married. I met when I was very young, and he was somebody also who didn't believe in. He was really rather fearless, and so. The sense of having an idea—it wasn't enough to have an idea. You have to act on that, and it could be a failure, or it could not work out the way you expected. But it—but you must do it. Otherwise, why are you alive? And that was a thing that was very, very strong from him. But I think I also had that in me—some kind of naive ability to say, "Well, why not? Why not do whatever it is that I need to do?" And I wasn't doing anything outrageous. I was just doing my work. But.、Uh, I guess that takes a kind of courage to believe in yourself, which I don't always have, of course. So some some alchemy of good fortune and tenacity and self confidence. I don't know what. Some humility, all of those things.、Mm. You have attributed a lot of your quote unquote success to luck, which is something. I find myself having some sort of cynical thought <laughs> towards. I think, you know, because I sometimes I I don't know if I want to believe, you know,、yeah. someone's success is based on luck because that almost sounds a little bit depressing in a way. Because then I don't know if that's just coming from that person being humble. I think it's definitely a mixture. I think that sometimes we just don't know how things worked out the way they did. You know, when you look back from my age and say. How did I know to do that, and how did that mistake become something that made sense? It's really a lot of mystery. So maybe the word luck isn't correct, but it's some kind of unfolding of events that you can't have complete control over. So it's one of those you do the best you can, and if things work out in such a way that you you can say from, maybe it's your mindset. 
that you look at what happened from a more positive point of view than from a negative point of view. So I just don't know. Uh, you know, we always say that in the family, you know, you know, just a good luck and a little bit of luck. And, and that's the kind of the uh, unknown element that falls into your life. And bad things happen too. But, but um, that, that is something that when we learn to live with. So I don't know what it is. The answer is there's, there's more I don't know every day than I do know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I just had an aha moment why I almost have this like negative connotation towards luck is because the culture I grew up in, Chinese culture, luck has been so interwoven in the daily life. Mm -hmm. It's almost very overwhelming in a way that everything has to be attributed yeah. to luck. Either it's lucky or unlucky. You're drowning in this superstitious thing on a daily basis in a way. Ah, yeah, that's amazing. And, and but uh, the my culture is very similar in that there was the evil eye, there was the good, you know, the good omens and the good things and the, 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 the bad things. And in my family, one of the reasons I think that we didn't speak so much is because if you said something good or you were boasting, then somebody would give you the evil eye and it would be bad luck. And if it's bad, you don't talk about it because it's bad. So there wasn't a sense of, it, it, it wasn't as literal, perhaps, but it was certainly there that there were fates that would, that would uh, you know, take, take action against you for either this or that or this action or that action. And, of course, I don't believe that's true at all. I just believe that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're living our lives and there's no supreme being or forces that are that are controlling anything so we're on our own mm. we're, on, we're on our own with our best instincts and our love of each other and our love of of, of being alive and trying to be good people I and mean, what you know what else can you do mm -hmm. but you do have this very s strong bond with trees and dogs <laughs> so i mean it kind of makes sense because they are Love, lovely, of course, but I wonder what is your special connection with them? Well, uh, dogs can't talk. And that's a beautiful relationship. It's a beautiful situation to have a relationship with somebody who never complains, <laughs> who's never mad at you, who loves everything about you without question. But the simplicity of that relationship, and of course, I've written, and I've written a lot about it, and I've painted so many dogs. But the more the, the, the more that we look for the purity of the really the important relationships, and, I, and especially during COVID, so many people were reevaluating what's important and what's meaningful and what, what in my life is unnecessary or a waste of time. And you, I mean, you can't, you can't be so rigorous. Of course, every day is filled with all kinds of stuff. But, but to me, to focus on nature in a way, I don't do anything with nature other than just walk through it. It's not as if I do some special, wonderful thing with trees. I just love them and paint them. And to the solace that you get from the relationship with nature and the relationship with looking at and looking and, and being with a dog. And basically, it makes you be in the moment. It makes you look at the world around you with a sense of wonder and with gratitude. So those moments are precious, and I take them because there are many moments that are that are difficult and terrifying and worrisome. So as many good moments as I can collect, I shall. I photographed a lot of dogs already this morning. So um, in my walk, so it's it's great, and you really you forget your troubles. So hurrah, hurrah for Do that. you have a favorite uh, breed? Well, it's funny because my very dear friend and my and she was my gallerist, Julie Saul, just uh, passed away a month ago, and oh, we sorry. have been dealing with with her loss. And at the same time, of the global the the, the despondency over the global war, mm -hmm. and um, so this, so yesterday I went for a walk, and she loved dachshunds, and she had always had. Dachshunds. And then I went for a walk and I sat down and I had a cup of tea at a cafe. And there, three people walked by one after the other with a dachshund. And I said, Well, this is Julie saying hello to me. 
So for today, I'll say that the dachshunds are my favorite and um, in honor of Julie. Mm. I love that. Do you all almost have these kind of like um, you take the serendipity, you learn from them. Do you see them? Do you like, do you see them as a sign usually or you kind of have a humor kind of to flirt with them in a bit? Yeah, I think I, I have a humorous way of saying, you know, if, if I think Julie is saying hello to me, I'm saying hello back to her. I, I won't ignore it. But I know that these are the things that we create, which are wonderful. I know that Julie is not sending three dogsons my way, or I think she's not. What do mm. I know? <laughs> but, 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 you know, all of the connections, you know, you know, there is a phrase which I don't know where it came from, and I wish I did, but it says, um, I find comfort in this false hope. And in a way that it encapsulates a lot of the day that we create the things that are meaningful. We create the good, the good, uh, ah, that's a good omen or that's a message or that's a sign. But in fact, I think we're creating it, but why not? So that's okay too. Mm -hmm. All of the above. Yeah. And you also talk about, um, you know, COVID has actually, because of lack of options for you, kind of like you you and many of us, right, are all confined in a very um, confined space. So lack of options actually open up a different set of motion for you. And what do you mean by that? Because I think in a way, some people might might argue otherwise, this could be very, you know, restrained in a way, right? Like tied up, cannot be free, especially for an artist, but you actually find something opposite. I think that I I respond very well to constraints. I like order. I like to clean my my room. I like to make my bed. I like to wash my dishes. I like to have a sense of a very grounded daily rituals. And in those daily rituals, I find my ideas spring up with a great with a great sense of surprise. My brain is occupied being very, very, very mundane. And then, oh, look at that. Look at that idea. That's a good idea. And I think that that's what happened with COVID on many levels. For people, time stopped and the world stopped. And we all were in the same condition. The entire world to be in the same condition is something extraordinary. And I thought, what a gift this is. And I don't mean the suffering, of course, and the loss and the, the, the tremendous amount of tragedy that occurred. But for, but for me, I was lucky, and I use the word lucky, I was, I was fortunate to, to be in a place where I was very protected. And uh, if you can take advantage of that. So it was a gift of, of quiet and a gift of thinking and a gift of you know, not thinking and just allowing the simplicity of life to take over. Mm. We do a lot of running around in New York, but everybody does a lot of running around. And this was... Stop running around for a minute and see what see what happens. Mm. It's funny because I, I when I was listening to the podcast you did with um, oh I don't remember the host name but on seventy over seventy and you had to you were like ah. repeatedly re yes, yes uh, you had to repeatedly kind of remind him stop thinking you know thinking is almost kind of you know <laughs> is uh, might be better if right. you don't think much. Um, it's kind of interesting to me because I feel like you would you you appear at least to be someone who think a lot, right? And then yet you kind of use that as almost advice to yourself and to others to not get into the trap of overthinking. Is that true? Am I assuming things, or that's that is true in your case? That's absolutely one hundred percent true and accurate. You 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 said it exactly. And I think that, um, you know, we have, a, we have an expression in my family that I may be crazy, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> and the, the sense of, I love your humor, Myra. We would say, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, the humor in the family. And actually, that's a punchline to a long joke, which I won't subject you to. But basically, it's not as if that there isn't, that there's an, an I mean, I use the phrase, and maybe you heard me talk about it, empty brain, in that when you have the stopping of thinking, which usually means stopping to worry. That's kind of synonymous on some level. Overthinking means over worrying, not knowing what to do. If you, not, if you just don't know and you empty your brain and, you, and allow yourself to not know, 
then, as I said earlier, the most fantastic ideas arise and the most wonderful things out of nowhere. And, and, and I think it's just leaving room for your brain to process whatever is doing, whatever it is, its chemistry is doing uh, to allow it to do that, which is why the walk is amazing and why uh, doing your work and not, and not thinking. And so when somebody tries to get too many answers, I think, uh-oh, no, no, no. Uh, stop thinking and just see what comes up. Just see what comes up. Right. And and I guess that's why, you know, the sometimes the best idea come to us when we were least expected, like when we're in a shower or going for a walk uh, or cooking or something like that. We are being occupied um, by some mundane daily, almost boring task. Um, so our mind can actually cool down and right. focus on right. the re- repetitions so very, in a way. A, it's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so another thing I kind of wanted to wanted to um, bring up, also I hope it's not uh, weird or insulting in any way because that's not my intention, but I cannot help but finding mm-hmm. the resemblance of you and my father my dad um my dad is a musician composer and conductor so he's an artist in like he i always often say he's like uh music it's integrated and woven in every fiber a fiber of his body and um he you know, like he's really thrived by orders, by um, restraints, just like you, Myra. And also he has a very sense of, uh, you know, connection with nature as well. But what I found is that you seem to really effortlessly travel between the dream world and the reality quite easily. And then you can access your you know, your dream world and reality anytime you desire. But for my dad, I find it's kind of hard for him to tap himself out of that dream world. He almost often detach himself from the reality. So I wonder, in your case, how do you usually kind of remove yourself from the dream world, from either daydreaming or night dreaming even, when you feel like you too too much indulge in that? Ah, well, I have a deadline. You know, I have a quitting time from my dream world, which is, you know, 5 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, oh, I can. He's also very yeah. funny as well, my dad. That's what another resemblance as uh, well. And, um, but, you know, I actually, as I've, as I've said that my dream, my work in my world, I, I never wanted there to be a distinction between how I lived my life and how I did my work. So that really is very interactive. And in the sense, that the most important things to me, or, I mean, the most important people to me are my family, but my, um, I guess my sense of empathy to people is, is there enough. And I'm also alone enough. I mean, I really can be very indulgent in my work and just be, I'm most, I'm, you know, I'm by myself most of the day. And so then I'm kind of delighted. It depends on my mood. I'm usually delighted. To, to be with other people. But as I said earlier, also, I love the real world in its very specific actions. I love sweeping the street in front of my son's museum. I love ironing napkins for anybody who wants them. So you can call me a day or night. So I, I just have this funny combination of very dreamy, and I know how to put it into, into practice. Mm-hmm. And another thing from also from my personal experience and, and from the things I've read, usually, you know, artists have this kind of like, usually when they become the reason I would say to become a working artist is usually they have this stubbornness in them. They're not let the world almost non-negotiating with the world with their own talent, their own belief and values. But that kind of stubbornness definitely will come will turn into their favor when they come from a very privileged sense because then you don't have to bend yourself towards capitalism towards other people's need and demands you can actually create in your world but from your upbringing i understand you came from a not very well-off family and so how did i i just wonder how did that come about that you 
you know, kind of really believe in what you wanted to create, and then you went ahead with it. Well, that was the. It was perhaps the right, the right time in history, because、uh, we. I mean, we were we were perfectly fine. We were perfectly well off as a child growing up, and we had a very nice life. But there was never any real sense of privilege by any means. This is also when I went to high school and college.、Uh, this is the late '60s, and money was the last thing that anybody thought about. We were hippies. We were anti-establishment. Though, if you mentioned money, you were some kind of wretched person who wouldn't be invited into our circle at all. So, the most important thing was just to do your work and to follow what you love. Following what you love would bring you to. We didn't even know enough to think about the future, but fortunately, as I keep now, the fortunately is going to come up every minute in this conversation. But <laughs> we were, we, and I'll say, how did that happen? We were good at making a living, and especially my husband, and we were good at doing business, but doing business in the way that allowed us to do the work that we really love to do, and to to try to do good work and to try to be good people. Which I mean, you're not always successful, of course, but. And so that was the and what what was our personality again? What makes you persevere and not give up? I never felt I had a choice. There was no question that I had to do what I had to do because I mean, even though of course I feel insecure and of course I look at my work and I go, oh, I don't know if it's good enough and I don't know whether I can I do better next time. I, I'll certainly try, or I'm lazy and I don't want to do anything. All of those things come into it, but the sense of The energy returns, and the the perseverance returns, and the stubbornness returns. I guess it's just in you. You know, those are the things、mm. that you say. What's in me? Yeah. How old are your grandchildren? My granddaughter Olive just turned six, and Esme、oh, wow. is turning three. Beautiful ages. Beautiful, beautiful ages. Beautiful ages. So much fun. And what I want to say is that I've been writing a an illustrated letter to them every week since Olive was born. So, and then when Esme was born, now it's to the two of them. And so there are hundreds and hundreds of illustrated letters which they will hopefully one day treasure or make a book out of. And I say to them, I'm giving you a book deal for the future. But just some sense, <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe they'll be worthless. But some sense for me, the continuity of sitting down and writing a letter, which I paint, you know, just some thing from the week, take to the post office, stand online there forever, until you can finally mail the letter. That's、uh, a great. That's one of the rituals when I talk about the daily, the real world, and just being part of that and stopping time. If you want to stop time, go to the post office. I always say that. But、um, yeah, and then you mentioned your mother also most valued. Was time right? So that was something that I can totally see you, you know, kind of hold on dearly to that. Yeah, that's a, and I what what she said was what's what's the most precious thing, and we knew the answer was time. That because that's what she was said. There's nothing else. Nothing. I mean, your health, of course, your health and time. Those are the two things. And uh,、um, and I collaborated with Nico Muley, the wonderful composer. I don't know if it's even something you can find online for a show that I did at the Cooper Hewitt, and it was with Abraham Lincoln's ticking pocket、oh. watch, which was repaired for my show. And he composed a piece of music where I wrote the text and what is you know what is the most what is the most precious thing, time. So、um, so we you know you 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 can't remember it every minute because then you'll go a little bit crazy, but. Try to remember it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't actually encounter that show, but I know you had a crush, quote unquote, on Lincoln. <laughs> so I I found that very fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I still do. I, it's not gone.、Oh, it's still there. <laughs> For the listeners who, if they don't understand why and how you develop this kind of special connection with him, if you can actually briefly tell us. Well, I was asked to do a an article, and then I and then a, I did a book about Abraham Lincoln. A section for there was one book for children,、uh, and another in my his book about history, American history, a book a section about Lincoln too. So, the more that I in, researched him, and the more that I I spent time with him, 
I think it's inevitable. Everybody, everybody who spends time with Lincoln falls madly in love with him. He was a brilliant man and a funny man too. He had a good mm -hmm. sense of humor. So I liked all of his, he reminded me of my family. Mm. And, and it's interesting also because out of all these like projects, you also quite identify yourself as a journalist, which is something I never thought you would because, you know, because I was a journalist before and I, there's some like um, very vigorous kind of act to it and a way of thinking to it. But your way is more playful and whimsical, which some, somehow is quite different than what I see a journalist would be. But yet you kind of describe yourself or identify yourself as journalist in a way. So I found that interesting. Can you elaborate a little bit for me? I think it's part of being an outsider, which I think is a fantastic gift to have been given. When we moved here from Israel, and my father said it was only temporary, so we never really, we never believed that we were Americans. I didn't become a citizen until I got married. And yet I wasn't really a part of Israel anymore because I was away for so long. So that, that sense of being an outsider and observing is a perfectly wonderful stance as any kind of person, as a journalist, as an artist. And I, I think that wandering around and telling you, reporting on what I've seen and what I, both in, with painting and with writing, is really my very wonderful, uh, you know, happiness. And I think that for me, the digressions, the things that you're not expecting to have happen, when you go, and I'm sent on assignment from different magazines for The New Yorker and for Departures and other magazines that, they want. They are probably looking for me to say what is off the subject and off point, but that is very delightful or very meaningful or poignant. So I'm just allowing things to happen, and then I can make my story as it ha as it comes. And because I can paint, it really adds another level. I don't have you know not. I don't have to use that many words, which makes me happy because there are a lot of words to choose from. <laughs> yeah, I I find that interesting because you talk about. You know, and at the start, you thought you want to be a writer, you want to write, and then you kind of like fell out of love with your own writing because they they kind of you know force you to go into a very sad and upsetting place, and so you thought you know what could bring me joy, and your sister's practicing art actually sparked something in you and kind of prompted you towards illustrations. So, do you still write, and is writing still kind of lead you to that more? You know, sad place because I feel like it's kind of interesting to our practice kind of prompted and then lead you to a different emotions. Well, I definitely write. I've, I've I've written most of most of the books that I've that I've done. I've written and I've painted, and I'm writing a lot uh, for the new books that I'm doing. I'm writing a good amount, but again, for me, it's a balance. So it's very nice to be able to to be quiet and to show a painting, and then to go back to writing. And I'm not as maudlin or as angst-ridden as I was as a teenager. Thank God, otherwise we would, be, we would be not having a good conversation. So I'm still keenly aware of the absurdity of life, of the askewness of how we navigate uh, sorrow and, and um, disappointment. But I also have a little bit of perspective. So I'm not dwelling in the misery all the time, I'm happy to say. Mm. Yeah, and I think that uh, the perception has changed and is still gradually to to change more further is that I think for longest time, we, we kind of believe like art marinate this, like misery um, marinate art. Art right. is coming from misery, coming from tragedy and joy wouldn't necessarily lead to any great art. I think that has been a long time. That was the notion that a lot of people almost hold on to. Right. And I think that and you can't do any good work if you're not aware of, I love that marinating in misery. That's fantastic. That's going to be, I'm going to make a dish <laughs> called misery, mar marinated misery. I don't know what it is. What's it going to be? Chicken? Mar miserable chicken? Marinated miserable chicken. You should definitely Something. do a film oh God, as well. So I was watching all the films you did with your, your son, uh, Alex. So oh. much joy. I was laughing out loud one of them. A day yeah. in your life one with the the rooster as your piano teacher. Oh, right. Mrs. Danziger. 
And that was a trained uh, chicken, by the way, a, a very, very good chicken who really was a good actor. Do you um, do you see the Alice B. Toklas one of, of me as Alice B. Toklas? Yeah, I did. Okay, good. I mean, that to me is... But I wouldn't even say that's a film. That's more like re she reincarnated in your soul or something. Like she came alive. Yeah. Like, yeah, tell us about that if you can segue to that. Because, yeah, I wanted to talk about that anyway. So since you mentioned it, let's go there. I wrote this little ditty about Gertrude Stein. I was her lover and she was mine. It was a sultry day in Paris, the day we met. A coup de foudre I'll never forget. She might have called me her Babette, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet. I was her pussy, and she was my lovey, my lovey, 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 dovey. To our salon came over. Yeah, well, I think that you, know, you run across people in your life who you don't know, like Abraham Lincoln, that you, I fell in love with, and Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, and I fell in love with them. And I think that they just they glow in the in the landscape and for me when something feels that wonderful i have to i have to engage and i have to collaborate so working on the autobiography of alice b toklas which is a book that i adored uh and not to believe one word of course or maybe every other word you know i mean and and we don't even care anymore about reliable or unreliable narrators we have to throw that out the window but at any rate uh in searching for truth truth is something else but uh, so when it was done and um, Alex and I were, t- my son Alex and I were talking and he, we, as you say, we collaborate on so many projects. Uh, I just thought, oh, I have to, I'm, I'm Alice. I have to, I have to make a movie and you, you know, we're going to make a movie together of me as Alice B. Toklas. And so we did this. I think it's five minutes. And um, I did, I, I felt like I was channeling her in some kind of crazy way. And of course I had to get the makeup which took hours and to get a prosthetic nose that would be her nose. And I felt so comfortable and happy walking around the city with that makeup and that, you know, hat, that flowered hat and thinking the eccentricity of being somebody else. You know, of course we know why people like Halloween so much because you can get dressed up and not be yourself. So I felt that um, I entered into their love affair in a very delightful way. And uh... oh, I I really enjoyed it, and then almost feel like you know that as I said, you that she was incarnated through your your work, and I wonder how did you let her cha- like let her let yourself be the channel to tell her story? Because I know a lot of actresses and art uh, actors will have some sort of things they would do prior to to the film. The filming part is like they have to let that channel going through their body right and then and after that i have have to exit it and then come out of it and then so did you have to go through some of that kind of like spiritual in a way practice yeah i wouldn't call it practice because i didn't have a clue what i was doing and a lot of it was ad-libbed and just we did it on the spur of the moment but i knew that i needed to enter into her so in a sense i was doing i guess what real actors do which is trying to imagine her in my body or my body is her and how she would I listened to tapes of her speaking so that I could start to get a glimmer of talking the way she talked and uh, then reading reading her book reading her cookbooks which are hilarious and if you ever try to make one of her dishes forget it it's just but you read it because it's so funny and it's so irreverent uh and so I, I, I had a good sense of her tone, her acerbic, sharp tone, and their utter devotion to each other in 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 a long in a long life. Mm-hmm. Do you think that come with age, or that just something you acquire early on when you were little? You know, the sense of like tap into your inner child pretty easily and not kind of preserve this inner child of yours, not letting her or him fade or go away or getting jaded by <laughs> the real life. And then you can just let her out or him out anytime you want it. I think that it's, again, I don't know if it's a choice that you make to, I'm for better or for worse, very connected to how I was when I was five and how I was when I was 10. 
And that sense of unlimited possibility, that sense of stupendous self-confidence as a child and not feeling that the world was a difficult place, feeling that the world was a wonderful place. So that clearly, whatever the forces were that enabled me to feel that way then, endured. And I don't think I've changed that much. I think I'm pretty pretty consistent. I think you'll, you'll see the seven-year-old in me pretty well. And the seven-year-old liked to make a chart of all of her daily activities. So make the bed, check, uh, you know, get dressed, check. And I, that to me was a fantastically comforting thing that, that I was controlling my, my life. And I think that's how we live with, and of course, the legacy of a really good sense of humor in the family, that that was, if you didn't send, have a sense of humor, I think you would be shown the door and, and mm -hmm. told to find another family. So maybe that sounds a little mean, but, but not really. But <laughs> not so, really. Um, sorry, not sorry. All of, not really. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, not sorry at all. Not sorry at all. Uh, and the ability to laugh and to laugh at yourself and to laugh at, at, at um, conditions of, of your life that seem unbearable. Um, yeah. And I have another question is about kind of the way of searching for authenticity. Because, I mean, the word authenticity has been thrown around everywhere. It's been hashtagged. It's been branded. It's been commercialized. Um, and also, you talk a lot about this importance and this, like, interesting aspect of being performative, being, you know, playful. So my question is, is this calling for action, for searching for authenticity, trying to be authentic, is even feasible? Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Right. I know what you're asking. And I think that, that the only thing that we know is that nothing stays the same through the day and through the year and through our lives, and that it's a fantastically complicated mix of hopeful and hopeless, smart and stupid, kind and mean, and that the authenticity is just being alive. It's, you, you, there's never a state that you place that you get to and you go, aha, I'm here. Okay, now it's just smooth sailing. There's no such thing as that. And that if you can accept that, which I can't, all the, I can't every minute by any means, and I'm sad and worried certainly as much as anybody else, but then you get, I think the age gives you perspective that things will change. If things look really grim, the weather will change, the day will come, the day will change, and it won't be this one, one condition. So we, we, you know, I wish there was a wonderful place where we got to and we're happy all the time and everything is, seems reasonable and we have pride in ourselves. It's not going to happen. So uh, learn to live with it. <laughs> One learns to live with it in all of its uh, imperfections. And that's the authenticity. The authenticity is what happens. Mm -hmm. So my last question is, what is your biggest fear? Do you have any fear right now? Oh, my God. I have so much fear in me, especially now. I'm terribly fearful of this war that's going on around us that's embroiling the world in a way that is makes me despondent it's not just oh too bad it's this is this is a tragedy of epic proportions because it feels like it's going to envelop the world and i think that we're we're looking at a dictator of a madman and a dictator in putin so it's it's like looking at history and going wait are we are we repeating World War II, where are we going? And so that terrifies me. And in the bigger picture, which forces me to walk even more. Now probably I'll just walk all day, every day, until, until things resolve themselves. Uh, and uh, of course, on a, on a daily basis, oh yeah, I worry, about, I worry about not doing good work. I worry about dying. 
and leaving my children to their own devices, which you would think I would be feel they were okay. And yet I think, no, they're going to need me around for at least another 100 or 200 years. <laughs> so all of the irrational, the irrational and the rational converge. And I, I just, but I think that all of those things are natural and try to, try to find a balance. And that's, that's maybe not the word job isn't really a wonderful, it doesn't sound so great, but maybe the, the advice I would give is that that's the balance that I, I would, the advice I would give myself is that you know, look for the balance of the world. Because as we say, it's not just going to be one thing. Mm. It will be everything. Um, all right. Um, this has been such a pleasure. Do you have anything you would like to share that I didn't actually touch upon that you maybe share some more wisdom? <laughs> I don't know if I have any more wisdom to share. Sasha, uh, thank you so much. You're a wonderful interviewer. Is this what you do full time? Oh, sorry. I, I didn't. I think you got cut off for a second. Oh no. Um, I'm saying, is you're a wonderful interviewer. Is this what you do full time? Oh, thank you. I wonder why that got cut off. <laughs> I would love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right, I'll well, say it again. Uh, right. Exactly. Again. Again. Actually, you didn't get cut off. I just wanted to hear it again. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in today. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. I really had lots and lots of fun. Myra is such a humble and talented artist and human being. Um, it's such a pleasure to be speaking with her. And we actually at the end talk about next time when I'm in New York, I would love to pay her a visit. Maybe we can go to the park for a walk and to look at the trees and dogs together. <laughs> All right. Um, if you can, you know, leave us a review or comment on Spotify or Apple Podcast, uh, that would be amazing. And if you want to sign up on our Substack letter, uh, I will link the link in the show note. And also, if you want to find out more of Myra's work, all the links will be in the show note as well. So, all right. I will see you next time. Bye.